A very warm welcome to this, the third in our series of Gifford Lectures for the academic session 2012 to 2013 from the historic St. Cecilia's Hall of the University of Edinburgh. I'm Stuart Brown. I'm professor of ecclesiastical history and deputy convener of the Gifford Lectureships Committee, and I have the honor to chair the lecture this evening. Our Gifford Lecture is the eminent anthropologist and sociologist of science, Professor Bruno Latour of the Paris Institute of Political Studies. Professor Latour's series of Gifford Lectures is entitled Facing Gaia, a New Inquiry into Natural Religion. In this series, he is developing an innovative approach to what might be called a political theology of nature, constructed around the Gaia principle. In the first two lectures, he has shown the difficulties and limitations in previous views of natural religion. He has highlighted the need for an integrated, multidisciplinary approach to the pressing problems of ecology and global warming, and he has begun to develop his new approach. The lecture this evening is being recorded, and the video will be available online on the Gifford website shortly. This lecture is also being streamed live around the world. Professor Latour. It is an honor now to invite you to present the third of your Gifford Lectures entitled Gaia's Puzzling Features. It is likely that very soon in the history of science, as well as in the popular imagination, the scene I'm about to describe will gain the same status as that of Galileo when, during the crisp nights of November and December 1609, he turned his telescope to the moon and it downed on him that every planet, including the Earth, was just like the others. Except that, this time, position have been reversed and the discovery turns out to be that the Earth is a planet like none of the others. Unfortunately, what is missing at this point is a play written by some new Bertolt Brecht to retell the two stories in reverse order, not from the narrow space of Venice outwards to the whole universe, but from the whole of the cosmos back inward to the narrow confines of the blue planet. It is the fall of 1965 at the Jets Propulsion Lab in Pasadena in the offices of a bioscience division when James Lovelock, a somewhat eccentric engineer, qua physiologist, not to say a maverick, is drafting a paper with Dine Hitchcock, no relation with the film director, on how to detect life on planet Mars. The two authors are somewhat embarrassed to confess to their colleague from the Voyager's mission that in order to answer such a question, the best solution is to stay in Pasadena where they are, and to turn a cheap infrared instrument from the Earth toward the red planet to check whether or not the atmosphere is chemically at the equilibrium state or not. 
According to the two scientists, this simple measurement is enough to provide the answer. Mars is dead as a dodo. No need to fly there at great expense to prove the obvious. It's hard not to be struck by the reverse symmetry between Galileo's and Lovelock's gestures of turning cheap instruments to the skies to make radically opposite discoveries. When Galileo, out of a fuzzy, iridescent, and distorted image that his toy's telescope extracted from the moon, decided, thanks to his extended knowledge of perspective drawing, to conjure up the shadows of mountains, of ridges and valleys, he hurried to establish between the Earth and its satellite a new sort of commonality, not to say a new fraternity. Both were planets, both had the same dignity, both turned around another center, the sun. Now at last the world could vastly expand. No longer was the Earth demoted to the filthy basement of a corrupted sublunary world ringed by circles order in ranks of higher and higher quality from the superlunar loftiness of a planet all the way to the supreme perfection of fixed star just one step removed from that of God himself. The earth now possessed the same importance as all other heavenly bodies without any hierarchies among them. He could be encountered as God, could be encountered everywhere in the vast expanses of the world. It's at this point that a view from nowhere could gain some likelihood since interchangeable disembodied spirit could now write the laws of a cosmos that were everywhere the same, since they extracted from planets no other property than being just like billiard balls. After all, falling bodies are falling bodies. When you have seen one, you have seen them all. Extension is thus possible since every single where is literally the same as any other. Res extensa may indeed be extensively expanded. To use Alexander Corrie's turn of phrase, Galileo helped his readers to move from the closed world to the infinite universe. It is from one of those fictional locations that Lovelock situates a little green Martian astronomer who, could not need to, who would not need to travel at all in any sort of flying saucer to decide, thanks to the mere reading of his equally fictional instrument, that the Earth is a planet fully alive because its atmosphere is far away from chemical equilibrium. If this is so, then, Lovelock concludes in a flash of intuition, something must keep this state of affair in place, some agency that has not been conjured up before, which is absent on Mars as well as Venus or the Moon a power of action so combined as to always maintain or to recover over billions of years a state of affairs steady enough to counter the perturbation introduced by many outside events, a more energetic sun, asteroid impacts, pollution by oxygen, and so on. While Galileo, by looking up beyond the horizon to the sky, was expanding the similarity between this earth and all the other falling bodies, Lovelock, by looking down on us from one of those heavenly bodies, is actually decreasing the similarity among all the planets and this highly peculiar earth of ours. From his tiny office in Pasadena, 
like someone slowly sliding the roof of a convertible car tightly shut. Lovelock brings his reader back to what be, should be taken once again as a sublunary world. Not because the earth lacks perfection, quite the opposite. Not because it hides in its interior the dark side of hell, but because it has, and it alone has, the privilege of being alive in a certain fashion, which also means, in a certain fashion, being corruptible, that is, animated, and also, thus, simultaneously, in equilibrium and brittle. In a word, actively maintaining a difference between inside and outside. Even stranger, the blue planet suddenly stands out as what is made of a long concatenation of historical, local, hazardous, specific, and contingent event, as if it were the temporary outcome of a geohistory, as attached to specific places and dates as the biblical narrative. That is exactly what was not to be taken into account when considered simply as a falling body among other falling bodies. Is not the reverse symmetry admirable? Take the cliché of his three narcissist wounds celebrated by Freud. First Copernicus, then Darwin, and then, somewhat narcissistically, Freud himself. Although it's highly doubtful that Freud was right in calling the successive decentering a wound to our human dignity, it's hard to deny that it is indeed a narcissistic injury and a deep one that Lovelock, after many others, is inflicting on all those who dream of moving out everywhere in the vast expanse of space. This time, we humans are not shocked to learn that the Earth is no longer at the center and that it whirls aimlessly around the sun. No, no. If we are so deeply shocked, it is to the contrary because the Earth should indeed be at the center of the universe and because we are imprisoning in its tiny local atmosphere. Suddenly, as if a brake had been applied to all forward movement, Galileo's expanding universe is interrupted. And Coyote's motto should now be read in reverse from the infinite universe back to the limited closed cosmos. As to, you may still spend huge budget on what used to be called, ironically, the conquest of space, but it will be to transport, at best, half a dozen encapsulated astronauts from a live planet across inconceivable distance to a few dead ones. Where things will happen is now, here, and now. Don't dream anymore, you mortals. You won't escape to outer space. You have no other abode than down here, the shrinking planet. Yes, quite a first narcissistic injury from which we have to recover quickly to be cured before the second one strangles us, that of the Anthropocene. That's for Monday. Not only should the Earth be the center of our exclusive attention, but we should also feel responsible for what happens. No escape twice. Back to Earth, anyway. We have all read Lords of the Flies, a story 
about young boys stranded by accident on an island from which they could not escape either, and where they glide down the slippery slope to barbarity. It's not casting aspersion on William Golding's reputation to surmise that, when after quite a few beer, he suggested that Lovelock should call his theory Gaia, he certainly had not reread his Asiod for a long time. If he had, he would have known that he was placing on his friend an ominous curse from which his theory might never recover. No, she is not maternal Gaia, or else you should change entirely what you mean by mother. In Theogony, far from being a figure of harmony, Gaia, the mythological character, emerged in great effusion of blood, steam, and terror, together with chaos and eros. In Hesiod, admittedly biased narrative, she is an earthly, black, brown, dark skin and scheming monster, a feminine power that three times in a row tricks her progeny into murdering her loved one. She first pushes her son Cronus to cut with jagged teeth iron sickle her husband Uranus' sexual path, I'm sorry to say, showering, showering blood all around, every drop begetting a horrible monster. Then, together with Rhea, Gaia convinces Zeus to fight against his own father and to defeat him. But then, never at rest, she plots to mobilize her last child, Typhon, a hundred-snake-heads monster, to destroy the empire of her son, Zeus. The Olympian fortunately wins. But I'm sorry to say, Gaia, at least viewed from the later point of view of the Olympian gone, is a dangerous figure, not to say a bitch. <laughs> yes, no doubt, there is a curse attached to Gaia theory. How often I have been warned not to use the term and not to confess that I was interested in Lovelock's book to the point of writing a play about them, and most of all, to concentrate this prestigious lecture series on his favorite character. You cannot possibly take seriously, I was told, those pseudo-scientific rambling of an old self-employed inventor who claims quietly on television that seven out of eight of the humans will be soon wiped out because, as a new Malthus, he pretends to have calculating the carrying capacity of planet Earth, 300 million. So, probably seven, eight, out. One of the many reasons why I've resisted those warnings is that I'm not quite sure that my dissuaders would have said in 1610 about Galileo when reading his Sedereus Nuncius. After all, an engineer rambling about God, the earth, the moon, the church, the Bible, and human destiny, comparing the earth and the moon to billiard ball, while dedicating his work to Cosmo, Medicus, Magno, Aer, Troriae, Tucci, might not have been met by them at the time with a much more favorable welcome. There is still a fearful symmetry between the two opposing cosmology I wish to explore with you tonight. In both cases, it's the fate and the face of the Earth that is in question, and that is enough to take both seriously. So if there is a curse over Gaia's fairy, I feel that it's more than fair to try to lift it by putting Lovelock's Gaia in the most charitable light. 
Clearly, I'm not going to evaluate this discovery the way an Earth system specialist could do, but only in terms of a political theology presented in the two other talks. Remember, our task in those lectures was to detect three elements so as to render collective comparable enough. Deos, Logos, and Demos. What sort of people are they? What are the entities under which they assemble? And how do they distribute the agencies making up their cosmos? This is why it's so important to understand how Lovelock composed the assemblage called Gaia and what difference it makes for humans. Or to put it more bluntly, what sort of political animals do humans become when their bodies are to be coupled with an animated Gaia that is no longer nature? As we go on, it will become clear that the people of Gaia are not the same as the people of nature. If there is one thing we have learned earlier, it's that any accusation of mixing up science and religion should not worry us too much, since in most cases, what passes for science as well as for religion is already a mixture that no distillation may purify. As we now know, what is more important in order to weigh the novelty of a figure such as Gaia is to detect which type of agency its name sums and what sort of unity it's allowed to have. We have seen the other two nights, but just because your entity is named after God, it doesn't have to act like one. And even though you claim that your entity is not a God, it doesn't mean you don't belong to a religion. Surprisingly, and that will be my thesis, on both those counts, even if you factor in the many ambiguities in Lovelock's prose, Gaia plays much less religious a role than the notion of nature that classical scientists used to defend and that those who claim to be religious wish to supersede. Hence the double misunderstanding of a Lovelock argument that has, gone, that has come both from religious and scientific circles. What I'm going to show is that the adjective secular, if it means involving no outside cause or spiritual basis, and thus fully of this word, then if it's true of using the word that way, Lovelock's intuition can be called fully secular. The paradox of a figure we are trying to encounter tonight is that the name of a primitive, shapeless, and shameless goddess has been given to what is probably the most secular entity ever produced by Western science and political epistemology. Two of Gaia's surprising features are, first, that it's composed of agents that are neither de-animated nor over-animated, and that, secondly, contrary to what is often claimed in criticism of Lovelock, it is made of agents that are not prematurely unified in a single acting whole. That's what I have to show. The best way to grasp the first feature might be to explore the parallel between Lovelock and another famous scientist, not this time Galileo, but rather Louis Pasteur, a French, not just a Scot. What makes the parallel with Pasteur so tempting is not only the role given to microorganisms, but the consequences they both draw for medicine. Is Lovelock not the author of a book called The Practical Science of Planetary Medicine? 
In the same way as Pasteur, soon after giving shape to his microbe, tried to convince surgeons that they were unwittingly killing their patient for their scalpel, Lovelock, as soon as he has drawn Gaia's face, tried to persuade humans that they have a strange role of being unwittingly no more than one of Gaia's disease. He called us, the people, plant. As if the challenge this time was not to protect human against microbes, but to protect Gaia against those tiny microbes that are called, I'm sorry to say, human. As I have shown elsewhere, if Pasteur's microbes have deeply modified every definition of friends and enemies in a given collective, we can brace ourselves for a similar change when we deal with an active Gaia. Just as in Pasteur time, at stake is nothing less than war and peace. If you remember the long battle that the nascent fields of microbiology had to fight against eminent chemists such as Liebig, you will recognize a situation very similar to the one where Lovelock tried to move from geochemistry to what he called geophysiology. In both cases, attempt to introduce some hitherto unknown agency, in spite of scientific discipline intent on disanimating the world, are accused of being a return to vitalism, that is, of other animating the agency. In both cases, the intuition that in a given set of chemical reactions, something more is at work than the usual suspect known at the time is met with deep suspicion, a suspicion fully justified by earlier fights against other hearts to defeat pragmatism. This is what has happened with Justus von Liebig, Pasteur's nemesis at the time. After a century of battles against mysterious agent and vital force, chemists at the time had finally established their paradigm by learning to account for all the reactions they could put their hand on, on strictly chemical pathway. This is why they had initially no patience for Pasteur, even if he was himself a chemist, when he claimed, for instance, to show that sugar could not be transformed into alcohol without the addition of an unknown agent, yeast, whose presence was indispensable for triggering chemical fermentation. As is well known, scientific agents, when considered in their nascent stage, are first a list of action, of competence, of performance, sorry, before having a competence, before being given a name. To use a semiotic definition that we have already encountered in the translation table for the name of God, what counts is not the name which is given to them at the end, but the long list of their attributes, property, and trial. What an agent is able to do is deduce from what it has done. In Liebig's hands, yeast was the mere byproduct of fermentation. In Pasteur's laboratory, the same character is called to a more glorious destiny. If in a few pages, for instance, Pasteur's beautiful set of memoirs, the reader moved from, I quote, until now, minute researchers have been unable, unable to discover the development of organizing being, Two, at the end, it is nevertheless it, the unorganized being that plays the principal role. It's because Pasteur has extracted its principal role from a set of scenes where the emerging character is first revealed through a series of humble actions. The case of Pasteur proves once again 
that science does not proceed by the mere expansion of an already existing scientific worldview valid everywhere, but by the constant revision of the list of furniture present in the world, what is normally called by a philosopher a metaphysic. Next to physics, yes, there is a metaphysic. But what is peculiar to scientists' metaphysics is that a set of action revealed by laboratory trial in the presence of virtual witnesses always precede the name that is given to the actant. In other words, reductionism does not consist in limiting oneself to a few well-known characters so as to tell the story of everything, but in giving names to characters that have first proven their mettle through trial and tribulation. This is why the word metaphysics should not be shocking to any practicing scientist, but only to those who believe that the task of furnishing the world has already been completed. And of course, as soon as you have decided who and what plays the principal role, as Pasteur said in his memoir, politics follow in tow. I think that Pasteur's case helped to throw a more favorable light on Lovelock's introduction of other organized agents to which he attributes the principal role in a series of actions that his contradictors see as nothing more than coincidence or mere superimposition. This time it's not the lively presence of a fermentation, but a series of chemical instability that are begging for the introduction of an other agent or agency to fit in the balance sheet. When Lovelock puzzles over the role played by the strange ratio of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, he introduced those actors on stage in much the same way as Pasteur. Many biologists today seem to think that the balance of nature alone explains the level of the two great metabolic gases, carbon dioxide and oxygen, in the air. This view is wrong. The pictures it gives of the world is like that of a ship with the pumps connected merely to recirculate the bilge water within it, rather than to pump it out. As the water leaks in, the ship would soon sink. So what is it, this leak, that has thus determined the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? In short, it's rock weathering. Until the 1990, geochemists maintained that the presence of life has had no effect on this set of, re of reactions. It's simple chemistry that determines the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But I disagree. Lovelock pours as the flavor of the wood in it, except that the enigma is not that the detective has to solve. It's triggered by the discovery of a corpse. But on the contrary, by the mystery that at least one body has not been murdered. At least, not yet. So the drama always unfolds in much the same way. The Earth should be dead, just like Mark. It's not. What force is able to keep saving it from assassination? Let's stage a trial to test whether the normal laws of geochemistry are up to the task of protecting it. Every time the trial is lost by standard chemistry, you have to add a little je ne sais quoi that counterbalances the force rushing to equilibrium. Then you find a name for the invisible protector, the agent responsible for this absence of death. 
Carbon dioxide should be in a much bigger, higher quantity in the air. Where does it sink? In the soil. For which agent? For the action of microorganism and vegetation. Now test to see if they are up to the ro new role given to them. Then repeat this forensic test for all the successive ingredients that are supposed to populate the earth. Nitrogen is not where it's supposed to be, in the sea, where it would have increased the salinity so much that no organism could have kept the cell walls protected against the poison of salt. Thus, the question should be raised about which force are propping up in the atmosphere. If there were no life on Earth, the continued action of lighting would eventually remove most of the nitrogen from the air and leave it as nitrate ions dissolved in the ocean. On a lifeless Earth, it seemed probable that these inorganic forces would partition nitrogen so that most was in the sea and only a little was in the air. Then take water. Once again, it should have escaped long ago, so as it did on Venus or Mars. How come it's still there? A challenge is launched against geochemists. Try to explain this situation through the normal laws of chemistry. You, the proponents of a balance of nature. The Earth has abandoned ocean because it has evolved not by geophysics and geochemistry alone, but as a system in which the organism play an integral part. What is so literally moving in Lovelock's and also in Lynn Margulis' prose is that every item we used to consider as part of a background scenery on the stage of which the majestic cycles of nature were supposed to unfold is interrupted and rendered active and mobile thanks to the introduction of a new invisible character able to reverse the order and the hierarchy of agency. Cloud cover amplified in part by the projection of algae. Mountains, almost all of them produced over eons of time by rain of tests and shells coming from dead organisms. Even the slow crawling of plate tectonics is said to have been triggered by the sheer weight of sedimentary rocks. There is something almost cartoonish in such an opera, as if every time Lovelock touched a part of the decor with his magic wand, suddenly, just like in Disney version of Sleeping Beauty, every inert passive agent of her palace began to yawn, to awaken from its slumber, and became fiercely busy from the dwarfs of a clock all the way to the doorknobs to the chimneys. The humblest props now play a role, as if there were no distinction anymore between main character and, and, and the, the environment drawn around them. Except for deep molten rocks inside the earth and deep space beyond the thermosphere, every single element of the background is brought to play its part in the foreground. Everything that was a mere intermediary for transporting a strict concatenation of causes and consequences becomes a mediator, adding its grain of salt to the narrative. In Lovelock's term, life and climate evolve together and function as two sides of the same phenomenon. Looked at from above, the Earth, taken as one big broth, is unexplainable without the addition of the work done by living organism, just as fermentation for Pasteur cannot be triggered without yeast. The same movement of animation that in the 19th century 
had transformed beer, wine, vinegar, episodes, and epidemic into the work of microbes, is now carried over to the point of churning air, water, fire, and soil out of a relentless action of living organisms. Everything is made to move in this merry-go-round, enough to make you dizzy. Much more dizzy than when Galileo launched the Earth around the sun, since no one could detect from ordinary experience the difference between helio and geocentrism, which was exactly Galileo's relativist principle. This time, however, people are going to feel how much difference this new form of geocentrism makes. Fine, you could say. The picture of the Earth is now animated well enough. Indeed, it has been turned into a true moving picture. But has it not been over-animated? Such is the second feature of a scenography I won't wish to renew with you tonight. How has Lovelock fared in weaving his way between the two reefs of reductionism and vitalism? On the face of it, fairly badly. If you read, Gaia is the planetary life system that includes everything influenced by and influencing the biota. The Gaia system shares with all living organisms the capacity for homeostasis, the regulation of a physical and chemical environment at the level that is favorable for life. It's true that it's not easy for a charitable reader to find one's way through the many versions proposed by Lovelock himself. How should we understand a sentence like the second one? When I talk of Gaia as a superorganism, I do not for a moment have in mind a goddess or some sentient being. I'm expressing my intuition that the Earth behaves as a self-regulating system and that the proper science for us study is physiology. Puzzling sentence indeed. If it's not a goddess, why call it Gaia? And what difference does it make for a superorganism to be a sentient being or a self-regulating system? This is putting too much weight on the poor little adverb as. If I contend that Lovelock is onto something as original as Pasteur, it is because, as is well known, the philosophy of biology has never stopped borrowing its metaphor from the social realm. It's haunted by the specter of an organism which is always in sociology as well as in politics, economics, and biology a superorganism, but is an actor to which is delegated the task or rather the mystery of coordination. The puzzle of composing a body raises exactly the same difficulty, whether it's made of cell, of human, of ants, of bees, or in the case of a watch, made of cog, springs, and wheels. If we wish not, if, if we wish not to lose sight of a problem of coordination, we should stick, as I have argued elsewhere, to one level only and see what scientists really mean by a whole superior to the part. Biology and sociology are exactly the same quandary. For my work on social theory, I've learned to be very quick at detecting when people shift from one research program, understanding how coordination is obtained, to another one, getting rid entirely of a problem by jumping to another level, that of society, market, Leviathan, corporate body, system, structure, any emergent kind of whole. The stakes are very high for us 
Because as soon as superorganism is taken for granted, it's not only science, but it's also politics as well as theology that may disappear. This is why it's so crucial to understand whether a figure of Gaia is unified or not and through which channel. And it's true that when Lovelock compares Gaia to a cybernetic machine, what inevitably comes back is the idea of a great dispatcher, a providential engineer, lording over the system so as to keep the thermostat at some optimum level. Here, a sudden switch to a second level, superior to the first, hides the difficulty of coordination in the absence of any engineer planning his or her self-regulating system in advance. And it's also true that if such had been Lovelock's main argument, the payoff in moving out of nature to Gaia would be a great disappointment. We would move from one providence, the law of nature with all agents simply obey, to one local providence, Gaia. But the nice thing about Lovelock is that he makes no effort to sustain his cybernetic metaphor for very long. They are quickly swamped with contradiction, as if the historicity of Gaia was much too strong to conjure the idea of a governor in command. As he often writes, the anatomy of Gaia is forever changing, which is exactly what is impossible with the metaphor of space shift Earth, the technical simile against which he never tires of fighting. So contrary to the three characters of Hume's dialogue of last Tuesday, contrary to your great hero James Hutton and his mechanical metaphor, Lovelock is not struck by the carefully designed nature of Gaia. His problem is not to burnish the copper plaque where the name of a designer, God, chance, or natural selection has been stamped. What is so striking for him is, on the contrary, that there is no design whatsoever. And yet, Gaia is alive. Having a history is not the same thing as having been designed. It is because there is no engineer at work, no watchmaker, whether blind or not, that no holistic view of Gaia can be sustained. It's because Gaia has a history that it cannot be compared to a machine, and what, why it cannot be re-engineered either, a point of great importance when the dream of geoengineering will soon begin to threaten the planet even more than before. We are not cosmonauts ensconced in a spaceship, and there is no Houston anywhere to call on in the case of a prime. Houston, I have a prime. It's in that sense that the figure of Gaia is such a secular one. Don't even try to think of retro-controlling it. So what are the real specifications of the agent making Gaia act as a superorganism if it's not a system designed by an engineer or a governor to function as a whole? If, as a physiologist, Lovelock's fight against Jewish chemists, he fight just as well against evolutionary biologists who consider that organisms adapt to their environment without realizing enough that they also adjust their environment to them. For Lovelock, every organism that is taken as the point of departure of a biochemical reaction should be seen not as thriving in an environment, but as curbing the environment to accommodate its need to thrive better in it. In that sense, every organism intentionally manipulate its surrounding to its own benefit. 
No agent on earth is merely superimposed on any other as a brick juxtaposed on another brick, as would be the case on a dead planet. Each of them hacked to modify its neighbor, no matter how slightly, to render its own survival slightly less improbable. That's where the difference lies between geophysiology and geochemistry. It's not that Gaia is some sentient being, but that the concept of Gaia captures the distributed intentionality of all agents that are modifying their surrounding to suit themselves better. So far, nothing is really out of the ordinary. Things get more interesting when this argument is used to extract the notion of cybernetic feedback out of its technological repertoire. Every evolutionist admits that humans have adjusted their environment to suit their needs. It's just that Lovelock extends this technical ingenuity to every single agent, no matter how small. This is not the case only for beavers, birds, and termites, but for trees, mushrooms, algae, bacteria, and viruses as well. To be sure, this is somewhat anthropomorphic, but as we have seen earlier, what begs for an explanation is not the extension of intentionality to non-human, but rather how it is that some humans have withdrawn intentionality from the living world, imagining that they were playing on the plank of an inanimate stage. The enigma is not that there are people still believe in animism, but the persistence of belief in inanimism. Being alive means not only adapting to, but also modifying one's surrounding. Or, to use Julius von Huxul's famous expression, there exists no general Humwelt that could encompass the Umwelt of each organism. The point, however, is not about whether to grant intentionality or not, but about what happens to such an extension once every agent has been endowed with one intentionality. Paradoxically, such an extension quickly erases all traces of anthropomorphism and introduces at every scale the possibility of unintentional feedback. The reason is that we are not asked to believe in one providence, but in as many providences as there are organisms on Earth. The sheer result of such a generous distribution of final cause is not the emergence of one overall final cause, but a mess. Since, by definition, what is true for each actor is also true for each of his neighbor. If A modify B, C, and D, and X to suit its survival, it's also the case that B, C, D, and X modify A in return. What could be the meaning of a final cause if it's no longer final, but interrupted at every point by the interposition of other organism intention? You can follow the ripples of one stone on a pond, but not the waves made by hundreds of cormorants diving at once in order to catch fish. So by generalizing providence to every agent, Lovelock ensures that the providential plans of every actor will be thwarted by many of the plans. The more you generalize the notion of intentionality to all actors, the less you will detect intentionality in the whole even though you might observe more and more negative and positive feedback. So far, Lovelock's argument is completely compatible with Darwinian narrative, 
since every agent is working for itself without being asked to stop following its own interest for the sake of some superior good, which would be the case if there were any great dispatcher. But where it had something to them in the definition of what it really means for any agent to be for itself. For Lovelock, taking things literally, there is no environment anymore. Since all living agents follow their it at intention all the way by modifying their, their neighbor as much as possible, it's quite impossible to tell apart what is the environment to which an organism adapts and what is the point where action starts. Such is the origin of a peculiar beauty of reading Lovelock and also Lynn Margulis' prose. The inside and outside boundaries are subverted, not because everything is connected in the great chain of being, not because there exists somewhere an overall plan ordering the all concatenation of agents, but because this coupling of one neighbor actively manipulating its neighbor and being manipulated by all the others defines waves of action that do not respect any traditional borderline, and more importantly, that are not happening at the fixed scale. Those waves are, if I may say so, the real brushstroke with which Lovelock's hope to paint Gaia's face. Such dissolution of the environment has several important consequences. First, it purged Darwinism of its remnant of providence. More importantly, it modified the scale at which evolution occurs. And finally, it redefines deeply what we could mean by natural history. Let me end this lecture with a brief look at those three features. In the early days of Gaia theory, before the introduction of the DAISY model, evolutionists complained that it could not be Darwinian because there is no population of planets competing for survival. But such a critique revealed a telling limit in the way biologists understood adaptation, a limit deriving from the economic and social theory they employed in their model of biology. Because in this theory, you have to choose either self-interested individual or the integrated system, a quandary biologists borrowed, I'm sorry to say, for us, sociologists. But what is totally implausible in the idea of selfish gene is not that genes are selfish, every actor pursues its interest all the way to the bitter end, but that you could calculate its fit by externalizing all the other actors into what would constitute for a given actor its environment. This doesn't mean that you have to wheel in a superorganism to which all the actors will be requested to sacrifice their goal. It simply means that life is much messier than economists and neo-Darwinians want it to be, and that any selfish goal will be swamped by the selfish goals of all the others, making the calculation of an optimum simply impossible. The reason why Darwin's secular intuition has been so often degraded in a barely disguised version of providence is because neo-Darwinian had forgotten that if such a calculation works in human economics, it's because of a continuous imposition of calculating devices 
a term which has been invented by Donald McKenzie we, here in this audience, I'm happy to say, in order to operate, to enforce the technical term is to perform the distinction between what a given agent should count and what he decides not to count. Without those devices, profit would be impossible to calculate and even more to extract from the so-called environment. As soon as you extend Darwinism to what every agent does to all the others on which it depends, the calculation of optimization is simply impossible. What you get instead are occasion, chance, noise, history. What used to be the environment of an actor vanishes. But the main mistake of evolutionists in their critique of Gaia theory was the wrong idea of how it was supposed to act as a whole. We recognize here the same alternation between actor and system that render human as well as biological society so impossible to grasp. As soon as you abandon the boundary between the inside and the outside of an agent, you begin to modify the scale of a phenomenon you consider. It's not that you shift level and suddenly move from the individual to the system, it's that you abandon both points of view as being equally impossible. One example of such a wave has taken an iconic character in Lovelock's saga, the sudden appearance of oxygen at the end of a Achaea. Oxygen, they say, is poisonous. It's mutagenic and probably carcinogenic, and it thus sets a limit to lifespan. But its presence also opens abundant new opportunity for organism. At the end of the Archean, the appearance of a life-free oxygen, sorry, little free oxygen would have worked wonders for those early ecosystems. Oxygen would have changed the environmental chemistry. The oxidation of atmospheric nitrogen to nitrate would have increased, as would the weathering of many rocks, particularly on land surfaces. This would have made available nutrients that were previously scarce and so allowed an increase in the abundance of life. If we now live in an oxygen-dominated atmosphere, it's not because it's a preordained feedback loop. It's because organisms that have turned this deadly poison into a formidable accelerator of their metabolism have spread. Oxygen is not there simply as part of the environment, but as the extended and unintended consequence of an event continued to this day by the proliferation of organisms. In the same way, it's only since the invention of photosynthesis that the sun has been brought to bear on the development of life. Both are consequences of historical events that will last no longer than the creatures sustaining them. And as the citation shows, each event creates for other creatures later on novel opportunities. The crucial point here is that scale does not intervene because we would have suddenly shifted to a higher point of view. If oxygen had not spread, it would have remained a dangerous pollutant in the vicinity of archaeobacteria. Scale is what has been generated by the success of living form. If there is a climate for life, it's not because there exists a res extensa inside which all creatures would passively reside. Climate is the historical result 
of reciprocal mutually interfering connection among all growing creatures. It expands, or it diminishes, or it dies with them. The nature of olden, olden days had level, layers, and well-ordered cosmos. Gaia subvert level. There is nothing inert, nothing benevolent, nothing external in it. If climate and life have evolved together, space is not a frame, not even a context. Space is time's child. This is what makes Lovelock Gaia so totally secular, and all effect of scale are the result of an expansion of one particular opportunist agent seizing occasion to develop and the fly, on the fly. If it's an opera, it's one that is constantly improvised and has no end, no rehearsal, and no score. If there is no frame, no goal, no direction, we have to take Gaia as the name of a process by which varying contingent occasions have been offered a chance to render later events more probable. Gaia is never a create creature of chance nor of necessity, which means that it lo looks a lot like what we have come to take as history itself. Such is the last trait I wish to emphasize. When we say that Gaia is a historical figure, we offer the same ambiguity as when we say, for instance, that the act of union or Pasteur's discovery of microbes are historical. The adjective designates simultaneously the event and the narrative of the event. And it's well known that historians have a complex relation with the objectivity of their finding. That the word narrative could either weaken, we are just telling a story, or strengthen, we are branching narrative onto what is itself also a narrative. I use the word narrative to designate the specific ontology of event that might have unfolded otherwise, events that had no plan, that are not led by any providence, journeys that, journeys that succeed or fail, depending on constant retelling and continual re-evaluation that modify once again their contingent meaning. With this definition, we see how we could move from a narrative of Pasteur's discovery of microbes he has a history, they don't. To the history of microbes, they have a history too. This is why when Stephen Jay Gould took such pain to tell the story of a Burgess shale fossil, so as to avoid any teleology, even the one of the Neo-Darwinian, he alluded, as you know, to Frank Capra's film with this book titled Wonderful Life, to suggest how things could have been different for so many lives along the way. You need fiction to tell a somewhat realistic story of what life forms have to pass through. Similarly, if Gaia is to be told through narrative, it is because it is also in its very fabric a narrative. In a piece of work that by its sheer size bursts the limit of a scholarly book, Martin Rodwick has shown that when geohistory began to burst the limit of time, it was not to escape from the narrow prison of church teaching. This book has traced 
how this novel geohistorical approach has derived from transposition from the human world into the natural, both from the profoundly historical perspective of Judeo-Christian religion and from its secular counterpart in erudite human history and antiquarian research. The former, far from being an obstacle to the perception of the immense time scale of Jewish history, facilitated the extension of historicity back into the vastness of deep time. And the latter provided the new practice of geohistory with its crucial conceptual metaf metaphors of nature. As Rudwick shows beautifully, the revolution came on once geologists convinced themselves that the planet was not the result of eternal laws of nature, the ideal vision like Houghton was Newton, but of highly specific places and dates, something that they could begin to realize by digging, for instance, throughout the older layers of Mount Vesuvius or here in the city of Edinburgh. To be able to read cosmic events out of minuscule disruption in the orderly layers of life was something common to the emerging science of geohistory as well as to the deciphering of incarnation and its complex web of textual emendation. Once intentionality and interpretation are granted to all living creatures, we may understand in a very different manner how the lily could sing the glory of God in more ways than one. Nature too and nature religion too, as we saw yesterday, might not be that far apart. It is possible at last to imagine a secularized science talking about secularized phenomena. How to name this new form of narration? Of course, we could use the term natural history and natural philosophy in their old 19th century meaning. But it is hard to extract from the adjective natural the poison that nature, with a big N, has injected in it. Feminists have pun on the venerable term of history to create her story so as to insist on the hitherto unrecognized presence of women's role in male history. And if it's very true that the distribution of agency by male historians about male historical figure ignore most of the feminine actor, it's also true that there has been a great inequality in the distribution of active forces when having human, males and females, strutting on a stage made of what had no history. If we don't want to use Gaia story, we could use the word geostory, better than geohistory, to capture what geostorians, such as Lovelock, are talking about. That is a form of narration inside which all the former props and passive agents have become active without, for that, being part of a giant plot written by some overseeing entity. Have we finally drawn the face of Gaia? No, obviously not. At ho I hope I have said at least enough to convince you that finding the place of man in nature, to use an old expression, is not at all the same 
as to narrate the geostory of a planet. By bringing into the foreground everything that used to remain in the background, we don't expect to live at last in harmony with nature. There is no harmony in this contingent cascade of unforeseen events, and there is no nature either, at least not in these sublunary realms of ours. But to learn how to situate human action into this geostory is not, such is the crucial lesson, to naturalize human either. No unity, no universality, no indisputability, no indefeasibility is to be invoked when humans are thrown in the turmoil of geostory. You could say, of course, that this rendering is much too anthropomorphic. I hope it is, unfortunately so. But not in the old sense of imputing human value to an inert world of mute objects. But on the contrary, in the sense of giving humans, morphing them into a more realistic shape. Anyway, what a strange, what a strange thing it would be to complain about the pitfall of anthropomorphism at the time of the Anthropocene. In a spellbinding lecture, I think I could feel it in the room. This vision of the Gaia principle, this vision of organic life evolving but also changing the environment in the process, the interdependence of organic and inorganic forms, of climate and life evolving together a plurality, a dynamism of infinite calculations, truly poetic vision of our geostory, a geostory that's, that's, that's more like an opera than a design. We've had a, a tremendous lecture. Now, Professor Latour has kindly agreed to receive questions or comments on his lecture, Thank you very much for that great talk. Um, I was just wondering if you think Lovelock could ever subvert and invert his own arguments um, and hypothesize about a supernova in this universe, but a far, far away galaxy that imploded and um, through a completely random situation, undesigned, another entity not similar to Earth, but perhaps um, where life, but in a very different sense to our anthropocentric kind of notion of it, could exist, um, thus allowing humans to look back out again into the unknown. Uh, as far as I know, the argument that he makes and I made after him doesn't mean that there is no other planet in other solar system, of course, if this is the sense of the question. What I think is interesting in his work is to re-insist on the sublunar 
dimension, a sublunar dimension which had been completely forgotten in the three centuries with which we have been living, I mean, we thought we were living uh, in, the, in the res extensa of the scientific revolution. So I don't know, maybe, um, maybe other people know uh, Lovelock as better than I do, but I, I don't, it, it's not contradict, it's not, I mean, there would be lots of planets, he would be very happy, I'm sure, uh, but he's interested in Gaia. So, uh, and that's why in the sort of now uh, canonic history of his work, uh, it often starts with Pasadena 18, 1855, uh, 1955 because that's where the, the, the beginning of the argument about the space, infinite space, began to become finite so in sort of strange way. And it doesn't mean that not other planet, it means that nature starts, I mean, there's one, one possibility of reading Lovelock by saying, okay, the supralunar is still there, and it's, you can still use the old ways of talking about nature, but the supralunar is different. Of course, I, I take Lovelock slightly out of his own repertoire, because I'm interested in the politics of what it is to make a whole, whole. And of course, I mean, he's an engineer, so he's not so interested in that part. I'm interested in all the cracks and discrepancy into his uh, writing, which point at something which is, I think, very original. That's what I try to, that's my charitable reading of, of him. There is a non-charitable reading on him, which says that it's just a superorganism. It's another superorganism, and it has to be taken. And Gaia has been taken over by New Age type of people, and it's a very disreputable. Uh, it's as bad as the big vegetable that Hume ridiculed in his dialogue, and we heard about on Tuesday. But I think it will be very unfortunate to leave aside all of the interesting stuff, and this is for for us. I mean, for for the human, which soon are going to change the name to be called Earthbound. Uh, we are earthbound. That's what it means to be earthbound. So I hope I gathered the question. Um, I was wondering what you thought um, the implications of this would be for um, sort of academic disciplines then. Um, so uh, presumably more interdisciplinary approaches, but also it seems to imply that an entire rehaul of um, how, how we understand the world and how we would want to know it. So would you see sort of natural sciences as being replaced with geostory um, at different levels? Or like, do you want to sort of open up the black boxes of science and say, okay, you know, those things will be black box because they're seemingly irrelevant. Let's look at those sort of, those props and see if that holds a better answer to the universe, or sort of what are the implications then of this? Um, yeah. Oh, that's a very nice question. Uh, which, there is a whole redesign of university and academic life, of course. Uh, what is interesting, I mean, I'm totally bad on discipline. I, I never know which my discipline is first. <laughs> but, I, but Lovelock is much worse, because he is, to my knowledge, the only well-known independent scientist who maintained his independence all the way and from his beginning of his career almost to uh, now. So uh, he is a completely undisciplined uh, character. I mean, he, he want, he, he, one of the instruments he invented is the one that has been used in uh, the whole beginning of the uh, popular uh, ecology movement, uh, his uh, detector. So 
what would be the successor of the academy, of the Humboldtian academy, is quite interesting. Geostory would be a big department <laughs> uh, in which there will be geophysiologists to be slightly distinguished from geophysicists. And they would be interested in this very, very small, very funny, difficult pellicules of feedback, which we call Gaia, which is not a globe. Next Monday, I will show that it's not a globe. Uh, there is a big problem with the global, which we have to take into account. Uh, then there will be lots of people interested in literature because the narrativity, the inner na narrativity of Gaia is connected to the inner narrativity of literature and the art. So they will be just close of the department by the geologist, which would be nice. It would be an interesting conversation. Then there will be exegete. As in Rodwick, Rodwick has shown him, it's one of the very surprising things in this book and surprising to him how exeget played a very important role in geology. Because suddenly, like exeget, when this text, this little phrase, this little sentence allows to understand something about the cosmic event of God. Well, this, what, which was supposed to be, on, I mean, completely against the idea we had of geology, is, according to Rodwick, who is the best historian of geology, what made geologists work and say this little layers of sediment here is an event which has to be understood as an event, as a local event. So there will be uh, lots of interesting people, soil scientists, who are some of my preferred scientists, very interesting people, despised but very important. Uh, there will be farmers, there will be gardeners, there will be, I mean, it will be quite nice, interesting. There will be all the people who are interested uh, in uh, we having an earth. So it will be a department of earth science, right? Inside which there would be theology, literature, soil science, agriculture, cooking, <laughs> wine, of course, wine. Uh, and then we, we let the supralunar people somewhere else, particle physics, uh, cosmology, very important, but not as important as earth science. But I've not thought of that, so it's improvised. I've not sketched. It's a good question, very good question. So is, is there scope for geopsychology in your department? Uh, I, I, I'm worried about, I mean, yes. I, <laughs> I try to avoid that issue because uh, one of the accusations always put against Lovelock is this idea of a sentient being which is supposed to have a psychology of its own and it actually, he has written a book called The Revenge of Gaia. There is an argument about a war, which I will take up on next Tuesday, because it's an important argument. But the, the question of sentience is, is precisely against what he's always fighting. So uh, in the sense that there is intentionality, and I use this argument here, which is one of the nice arguments in Margulis as well, uh, there is a very important element of psych psychology. But uh, it would be an inter-psychology, not an intra-psychology. And um, 
yes, let's have a department of intra-interpsychology in the earth science. That would be a nice one. As, as long as we don't globalize it too fast. See, the big point is not to jump to the other level of a, of a globe. Uh, this is what we'll, take, we'll see on Monday. Because the globe is actually, Gaia is not a globe. Gaia is not nature, Gaia is not a globe. It's not a blue planet. It's a different type of being. And that's a difficulty in the public representation. I was wondering to explore some other implications for the university. Not so much in the distribution of faculties, though, but in the distribution of particular core concepts. Because as you've been exploring the relationship between parts and wholes, um, and the questions of scale, which are introduced into that, and the massive oscillations in conceptions of the whole that happen in history, it also seems that there's a very interesting reconfiguration of the relationship between contingency and necessity, but also of fragility and solidity or reliability. In, the, in your account, contingency and necessity become very, very interestingly mingled. Um, accounts of what must be are utterly tied to things that might not be. In modern philosophy, in modal logic, contingency and necessity are very, very widely distributed and, and made separate. Whereas in the old theological tradition, contingency and necessity are very closely and strangely oh, entangled. And you're re-entangling re them in a way which is seems to be recovering an interesting dimension of theology. In the same way, the relationship between fragility and solidity or reliability, they're also entangled in the old theological tradition. There's both a doctrine of God's utter eternal reliability combined with this extraordinary historical moment of incarnation and fragility and, of course, uh -huh. destruction. Yeah, and whereas these things should be very far apart, and they are in a lot of modern thought, in your account, they're being brought in a really interestingly entangled way. So theology is going to be not just one faculty in this, but a very... It's not one one? Not just one faculty. Oh, several faculties. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be distributed in a very odd way as you recover core elements of Christian doctrine in this bizarrely reconfigured way. And I wonder whether that uh, seems to make any sense to you. Oh, I think you are going to give a sixth lecture. <laughs> because you do a better job than I do of, uh, of making the connection with theology for which I've, I mean of course don't know enough but I'm very uh, interested by what to say especially on the contingency and necessity argument which is probably one of the most bizarre things which has been uh, lost when we shifted from creation to nature as a, as a metaphor and, and the fact of abandoning nature as the place where we are, even though nature can be sub, sub, superlunar, probably we uh, allow us to reconnect with lots of tradition which had been uh, lost. Basically, I'm not sure which, which part of theology you are referring to, but certainly back to 16th century, a lot of things is 16th century. And there is this very strange, what you say pushes me, again in this direction, there is this very strange 16th century aspect in Locke, in Lovelock, um, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he has a strange name, this guy, Lovelock. I mean, this is an amazing name. It's why I wrote a play about him, because I mean, it just, he's a, jumps on stage to make a play, right? There is a link between now and 16th century on lots of reasons, I mean, which is probably linked to all these traditions, fragility, and solidity, necessity, and contingency, 
which once the rest extensor was supposed to be what inside which everything was from here to the Big Bang, could, could not accommodate. And that's why uh, it might seem very odd to use Lovelock for, and to use the word secular, but I think it can be shown in much more detail than I can do in an hour, that uh, he is not using a other animated nor a de-animated agency. So the key notion which I'm using here, of course, is the notion of agency. What is the tradition of philosophy pre-16th century or 16th century, uh, which I should use, I don't know, but I would love to know more about what, what, uh, where I should feed. My, my philosopher is Whitehead. So there is a connection, of course, because he's at the end of the bifurcation and he criticized the bifurcation. But what is so interesting in lots of Lovelock's writing is exactly, and Margulis also is exactly that, that contingency and necessity is not the way to organize the understanding because it's event seized by other later events. We are the creature who have seized oxygen, poison, and turned it to something else. And so we create the condition of the next one uh, in a completely historical series of embranchment, and it's, which is neither unplanned nor planned. It's another of a, of a difference. So thank you very much. There is a, another inversion which is quite extraordinary is that people now talk about nature using an historical vocabulary like tipping point, acceleration, great acceleration, etc. And they talk about human <laughs> history using the word hysteresis, necessity, uh, uh, blockage, blockage, etc. Et There's a complete inversion of the vocabulary we use to talk about our own collective, which is another one of the smizzy things which Gaia is going to cause, which is why we are such an interesting time. I think we may need to draw things to a close. There are a number of other questions, I know, but um, we've had a tremendous third lecture. The figure that came to my mind as you were speaking, Professor Latour, was uh, G.W. Leibniz and his monads, uh, uh, vision of the universe as a multiplicity of, of creative agents. But I rather suspect you wouldn't go so far as to say that this is the best of all possible worlds. It's no, simply one. <laughs> the response, I think, uh, the, the questions that we've had, the response of the audience has, has indicated, better than my words, the appreciation that we've had for this third Gifford lecture. We look forward to the fourth lecture on the intriguing subject of how many globes can be held on an angel's fingertip. And that lecture will be presented here in St. Cecilia's Hall, 5.30 p.m. on Monday, the 25th of February. So could you join me once again in thanking Professor Latour. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.